It's not an easy task to create original content for kids. How do you create a narrative that will be compelling enough for a child to devote their undivided attention to? Well, for a while, it seemed as if Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network had cracked this code. But kids today are different, with a wide range of content offerings at their fingertips. Kids today are often gravitating towards user-generated content platforms like YouTube. Let's put it in perspective. Nickelodeon has lost 60% of its audience since 2010. That is from Nielsen. Meanwhile, 9-year-old Ryan Cagey of the YouTube empire Ryan's World has amassed over 12.2 billion views, spanning his content on the Ryan's World YouTube channel. And very, very importantly here, Ryan's consumer products have now clocked half a billion dollars in revenue. In the media landscapes of the early 2000s and today, there's a clear and consistent and important connection between consumer products and successful narrative television. To further explore this topic, I had the pleasure of chatting with Marlene Sharp. Marlene has a long career in adapting consumer products, especially toys and books, into TV series, films, and short-form narrative entertainment. This includes the likes of Sonic the Hedgehog, Postman Pat, and Paul McCartney's kids' book, High in the Clouds. Enjoy. Well, fantastic. I, I'm so happy to have with us today Marlene Sharp. So Marlene has many expertise. Um, some of that is adapting consumer products into TV series, films, short narrative entertainment. Uh, this includes Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, a name I would hope everybody is familiar with, uh, as well as some work with Paul McCartney's kids book. Um, but of course, your other work does span TV and film. Uh, and I think this is such a great conversation because you clearly are so experienced in Hollywood. And there is, of course, this new huge digital wave of, uh, you know, content creators and independent voices making entertainment. So it's so great to get the perspective of somebody who is very experienced in this field. So Marlene, I guess, do you want to talk a little bit about your expertise, your background, and I guess sort of what led you to uh, us having this conversation today? Sure. Um, well, hello, my name is Marlene Sharp, and thank you to Dylan for having me here today. I am currently the proprietor of Pink Poodle Productions. And if you hear the sound of a poodle at any point during this recording, it's intentional because there is a poodle, Bichon Mix, who is the chairwoman of the board of my company. So, so P.S., that might happen. Um, but I got started in the business as a performer, and that was my, my original goal was to perform and just just 
be an actress, not that that isn't enough for some people. Um, that's a wonderful profession that I unfortunately was not able to uh, make a living at. So uh, I have a background in performing and I, I went to school um, in uh, drama communications, graduated from Loyola University in New Orleans and also from San Diego State with an MFA in musical theater. And then after graduate school, I didn't really want to wait tables and do the audition, the typical actor stereotypical auditioning routine. So, um, I, and I, I was at that point, I was becoming more interested in other aspects of the business. So I thought maybe temping would be a, a good way to try out different companies and different, um, different aspects of the entertainment business. So I temped and one of the, the early places where I temped was a company called Renaissance Atlantic Films that was owned by one of the gentlemen who was instrumental in bringing Power Rangers to the United States. So he, my boss's name was Frank Ward and he was um, the retired president of Bandai America. And Bandai is the toy company that launched Power Rangers in Japan. And so my old boss, um, well, he, he, he brought me on board as a temp for a few weeks and then hired me full time as an assistant. And then I ended up working for him for five years. And, um, and it was a very small company. It was uh, himself and one other lady. And then she left and then I assumed her job duties. And um, so it was just Frank and me for about four years. And I worked on Power Rangers and a lot of the shows that Saban Entertainment, um, they collaborated with Bandai, the toy company. So it was a lot of Japanese, Japanese intellectual properties that had already been hits in Japan. So we were adapting them for audiences outside of Japan. And um, I've kind of been in that part of the business for my whole career and also acting uh, as a kind of a side hustle. And I had a few times where I thought that acting was going to be my main hustle, but it never quite worked out that way. But uh, I am available just in case, just wanted to get out there in case there is anybody who needs these vocal stylings. That's an important plug. I'm, I'm glad we got that in. Yeah. Um, well, awesome. I, I think going to the uh, original television producing, when you talk about consumer products as well, um, I'm so interested. So if there is a, a toy or some item that is just flying off of the shelves, is that almost in a case for case basis? okay, wow, this means that if we adapted this to a TV show, there is going to be an audience there. Um, is that always the case or was there? And I guess, so God, this is turning into many questions, but I imagine even what did work then and looking at the metric of, all right, if this was flying off the shelves, maybe this would work for a TV show. Maybe that's different now. Maybe uh, Amazon or, or whatever it may be, when you look at tracking of certain packages or toys, that's going to tell a different story for what might work for a TV show. So um, I guess what is the philosophy for what's going to work? How can this toy then shift into uh, a broader piece of entertainment? 
Wow, that is, that's a good question and a question that has multiple answers, as you might have expected. And sometimes it's intentional that a toy, a toy is launched at, at retail and it's intentional that there's a TV show or a movie or something coming. So it, it might seem, seem organic with the timing, like, oh, this was a successful toy, but then there was this TV show, but in reality it wasn't. It was just really great strategy that happened to work out for everybody who was behind it. And then um, sometimes, sometimes toys are launched at retail and there is no plan for anything other than maybe some social media videos or commercials. And then it just takes off. And then there, there is a lot of interest from the entertainment industry in turning it into more uh, narrative content. And then um, there's also the case of toy companies or consumer products companies building this into the strategy and, and, and not even disguising it. So not being sneaky about it, just, um, just go, going with it. And, and you'll see that a lot with um, properties that come from the big toy companies, especially like Hasbro and Mattel and the, um, the game companies too. Like I, I uh, worked for level five, which is a Japanese video game company. And everything that we did at level five had what they called a cross media strategy. And so they, we would develop um, TV, toys, games, and publishing. Mongo was very, uh, very important to the, all of their intellectual properties. We would develop those all simultaneously and then um, launch everything at the same time. And then if the if the property took off in a big way, then um, then other licensees would come on board. So, you know, then you'd have like apparel or um, um, housewares or th different things like that. So so it can, there's not really a rule book for it. There are some, I, I wouldn't even say best practices, some helpful practices, but there's really no such thing as a slam dunk. It's all a gamble. And there is a lot of market research that goes into it, you know, trends and things like that. But um, yeah, it can come, it can happen a number of different ways. And then there's always lightning in a bottle. There's somebody who creates something that just becomes a, a sensation on the internet or, um, I guess that's the way most things become a sensation these days. But before the internet, there were, I guess, other ways that people people could launch stuff with a home-based business or like sell at flea markets or something. And then eventually turn into, it would turn into something huge. Yeah, completely. And uh, I guess when you talk about, all right, this can be licensed, whether it's uh, a TV show, whether it's apparel, there's so many different ways to, I guess, diversify the influence there. Um, but what's interesting is say with something like apparel, that is not going to require the same degree of writing and conceptualizing of what is the story, what is the narrative that can be told from this? Of course, that something like a television show could. So you, you earlier alluded to market research. Um, what kind of market research, I guess, what are the big questions that need to be answered through market research 
when you try to figure out, all right, what is the narrative? What is the greater story that we can really tell here? Um, and I'll say as context um, and why I'm so excited about this conversation is, of course, there's on YouTube, the Ryan's Toy World and Love Diana. You know, this is huge now. And it's funny because it seems like some of your earlier experience almost did act as uh, the the uh, precedent for what we see now with Sonic and these other things. So clearly there's something here. So I'd, I'd love if you could shed some more light on what are those answers that we need from market research in order to figure out, all right, what is the narrative that can be told uh, through the toys and of course through the television show as well? Yeah, well, uh, again, there, nobody. So thus far, nobody has penned a rule book on how to do this stuff. So it's it's all highly uh, experimental and trial and error. But um, so market research these days can take a number of different forms, and the kind that um, is traditional, old school, I guess, is besides um, if something's already a product in the market. Of course, you can look at the sales data and see like the different territories and um, maybe you can get some some demographic data like um, based on you know if sales were made online and and parents maybe answer some questions about their child or or something like that um, and then there's there's uh, there's the you know information you can gather through sales but then there's also um, market research through market research companies that do a combination of qualitative and quantitative research. So the, the qualitative would be where you take a deep dive with the target audience and you, you create a sample group or groups and ask them a bunch of questions. And um, so if, if you have a toy prototype, you can let them look at the, the toy prototype, or if you have sample animation, they can look at it. And, um, and we're, we're talking about a sample group of kids because a, a lot of my experience is in the kids' world. And, and even, even um, properties that have a wide appeal, like let's say Minions or um, oh, what else is something like that, the Marvel Universe, I guess, the, those things, it, it's very important for the toy, the, the, with what's called the master toy line, which is like the, the um, action figures and play sets, those types of things that would sell at, at big retailers like uh, Walmart and Target. That's like the most important iteration, uh, even more important than a video game, because that's where the most sales are, are usually made. And that's usually the most important licensee. So if you're not, if you're not a toy company making content for your own uh, IPs, then um, then you're a company with some kind of character that you you want a toy company to come to you and make that investment in your property. And so um, so a lot of emphasis goes into the toy, the play pattern, like how the kids play with the toys, how they relate to the characters. Do they want to dress up like the characters or do they prefer to, um, you know, act out with um, action figures and play sets or, or uh, like um, board games or, you know, so something handheld. So the so um, that's the uh, qualitative 
research. And then the quantitative research is more like surveys and things, things that a parent and a kid could do at home. And you can, you can reach more people that way because you don't, you're not going into their homes or having them go to a facility to um, spend several hours playing with things. Um, right. it, yeah. So you can reach more people that way, but you can't dig as deep. So that's more of the traditional research. And then for anything that is already existing, you can really observe the fan base. So you can, you can, um, and that was something really important to, especially to the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, because the, the fan base is so, so important. There, it, you know, it's an IP that's been around for 30 years. Next year will be the 30th anniversary. And so there are fans who basically have lived with Sonic their whole life long and they, are very they're very dedicated they support all the merchandise and the content but if they don't like something they can derail the entire thing with their with their intense uh hatred and backlash towards anything that seems to be against the canon but it is in, in some ways in a lot of ways it's helpful to go back into the history of the IP and see what's worked, what hasn't worked, and then to listen to the fans online. And I think that's what really made the Sonic the Hedgehog movie such a huge hit, is that there were so many Easter eggs in there, even for, for there, there were Easter eggs for every level of fandom, I think, but especially for like the real diehards who grew up with it and have, not wavered for the last you know 25 plus years yeah um and it's funny with sonic i i know i think both of us and anyone listening is probably thinking about when this very recently came up in the news uh and there was a very notable widely uh positively received response from the fan base because of some of the modifications the studio made really showing all right, we're listening to the fans. We understand as to exactly what you said. People have grown up with this character. They feel like they know this character. So of course, they're really going to appreciate you going the extra mile. And it was noticed. I think it did uh, really well box office wise. Someone might want to Wikipedia that, but I'm pretty sure I remember Deadline.com saying it did well. But, um, you know, beyond that, you were saying earlier uh, just about when there is a fan base there, that gives you a great launching point. Um, so say it's a video game, say it's an action figure, uh, say it's some YouTube influence or something. Is it just, all right, we need to check the box to see that they have a huge following? Or is there more to what you look for? And I guess this is outside of just the market research, but what are some of those indicators of, okay, this fan base beyond being large is going to be a fan base that is really going to respond to this uh, being produced into a narrative television show. Yeah, well, I think it, it's very helpful to be true to the brand and true, true to the influencer and the world that they come from. So like, for instance, if you were gonna, if you were gonna create a TV show or some kind of narrative entertainment for Miley Cyrus now, it would be different than what Hannah Montana was because she's a grown up now. And um, so probably, you know, she has a different target demographic 
you'd want to do something music oriented, but not the same style of music that she sang when she was a little girl. And um, so, so the the thing with um, developing for established brands is that you you want to try to balance respect for the existing fan base because they made your property what it is and they that they, they are loyal and um of course you you want to retain them but you also want to grow the brand you want to bring um new fans because with most ips the fans age out at a certain point so you want to have a way to continuously refresh the fan base or or even <clears throat> um, push for a nostalgia factor so that parents will want to share it with their kids and and on down the line grandkids and what have you so um so yeah it's it, it is it's always a balancing act to to respect the fans <clears throat> and stay true to what what they do like if somebody is a musician <clears throat> excuse me you, you'd probably want to involve music and their style of music if somebody's a country music star you wouldn't it, i mean it could work the weird stuff happens all the time but probably the most logical thing would be to put them in a music driven property that aligns with the style of music and the demographic that already um that already is appealing to fans <clears throat> and and dedicated fans can usually smell a contrivance pretty early on and that's usually what uh what would get the sonic fans upset when they could see that oh this is a money grab or this is a, this is inauthentic in some way that's what really enrages the loyal fans and then um sometimes you can overcome that and sometimes not yeah and boy that is something we we have to dive into uh i hope you're ready for this but you know i i think especially in almost 2021 but you know what we've seen recently uh is that the response the criticism i guess just the candid nature of a fan base is unlike anything you will ever see. Um, and you know, that really exists for a musician, for an influencer, but also for something totally fictional, whether that's, uh, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog or, you know, some other creation or character of a property. Um, so using that, I, it just shows that you need to make sure you are upholding the correct message to the fan base. So I imagine in your long career doing this, You've probably seen examples, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to name any names, but you know, you've probably seen examples of companies that aren't correctly analyzing the fan base, what they love about this character or property when they go to create some narrative shell. Um, so what are those lookouts? What are the correct ways that you need to analyze this? Um, yeah, and I, I imagine the answer would be more than just, of course, the market research and some of the other things we've talked about. But are there other areas where you see uh, other companies kind of slipping up in reading the fan base? Well, <clears throat> I think, and, and again, this is all my opinion and based on my experience, somebody else could have a completely different perspective. But in my experience, one one thing that's very helpful is 
to employ people on the brand, whether it's um, people working on the consumer products or writing scripts or what have you, people who are fans, you cannot manufacture that kind of enthusiasm, in my opinion. I mean, some people can fake it pretty well, you know, just just to stay employable. But uh, there's something about an authentic fan who is then going to work for the brand of their dreams. And it's, it's, it's just part of their DNA. And um, that, again, going back to Sonic, I think that really made such a difference. The, the people, I know um, a number of my former coworkers who are still at Sega and Burbank are legit fans of Sonic the Hedgehog. And, and, and when I worked at Disney, I worked with, you know, crazy Disney people. So, and there's, there's something about that that's really um, almost like lightning in a bottle or it's, there's a magic about it. And then, um, and then, you know, if, if you're not an authentic fan, that's not to say that you can't be a, a, a viable worker for the property, but, um, but I think it's, it's important to uh, bring people to the, the cause, you know, have people on board who understand that this is a business. And yes, people are passionate about it, but if we're not selling products, then nobody's going to have a job after a while. And so I've had the experience of working with writers and artists um, who there's a struggle between their art and their style and what the property needs and demands. And, um, you know, some, some of the, the artists who come on board feel like, they're selling out or, uh, you know, like, oh, you know, we need to make a good story or this needs to be funny. It doesn't matter if we have five vehicles in, per episode and two pets and this and that. Who cares what the toy company needs to refresh the brand every six months? And that is dangerous thinking <laughs> because I, and, I, and it comes from a, a, a good place. <clears throat> Um, who doesn't want to be creative? Everybody wants to have their own spin and, and put their own ideas into something. However, if it's an established brand, you're writing and creating in a little box that has already been uh, established and built on through the years. So, so it's like if you have a Victorian house, you would not want to put like uh, glass and chrome all over the place. I mean, you could do it, but it's not going to necessarily gel with the rest of the structure. And the, that's kind of the analogy with um, an established brand, especially especially one that's been around as long as uh, some of the ones that I worked on, like not just Sonic, but um, Pink Panther <clears throat> is another that I worked on and um, Postman Pat, which is a very beloved British property. and um, and Power Rangers too. I mean, Power Rangers is is now a you know it's been around many decades. So so you have to consider that and 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 try to keep people who are in in charge, like management or supervisors, people who are able to imitate the style and the 
who know who know the canon or who are at least willing to learn it and and pay respect to it and not just tosses everything out because they want to create their own masterpiece. So I would say those are the two two things to look out for. Two two two. I guess it's like two sides of the same coin type of thing. Right. Yeah, no, it really is that authenticity of somebody working on the project who does love it. You know, the devil's advocate argument would be like, oh, well, if, uh, you know, if, uh, if uh, a mother is a surgeon, I don't know if she should be operating on her kid. But no, you know, this is totally different. This is if you have the passion and you're already very tapped into the community, especially and this does kind of transition well into the digital end of things, because say for Sonic, if you are a diehard Sonic fan, I imagine you're a part of the Sonic Discord chats, the Sonic subreddits, you know, you know the communities, you know where these people congregate. Um, so I guess taking into account how it's changed for digital, uh, really thinking as well as distribution, um, because I know for a lot of these companies who want to figure out what do we do with our property, how do we build off this, um, it now is, okay, yes, serialized shows, this is great, but also there could be some presence across social media that that would go a really long way. So I guess, how are you seeing that manifest in recent years? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. And they're, they're uh, up until recently, like maybe the last five years, I, I would say there's been a lot of old school thinking in the toy business that, um, in order to justify the investment in a toy line, you know, making the molds and the packaging and then the focus testing. I mean, it's a huge investment for any toy company and, and really for any licensee, even if it's an apparel company, consumer products, there's a lot of research and development and art and, you know, a lot goes into it. It might not be along the same lines as a TV show, but it's still an investment. And, um, a lot of licensees and and also IP owners would feel like, oh, it's not worth the investment unless we can guarantee that there will be 26 half hours on Cartoon Network or 26 half hours on the Disney Channel. Like we've we've got to have that, and then everything else will fall into place, and then we can, you know. And and the trick it it, it is always a tricky to <clears throat> get the toy deal and the TV deal to align and you know all the stars come together <clears throat> excuse me um even even if you're the one who owns the ip and it, even if you're a big company even if you're disney because disney is not a, a toy company so they will license their characters out and have other other companies make the toys and so some some companies don't want to take that on so um so you've got to uh you know keep that in mind all the all the risk that's involved and could you remind me of the original question <laughs> <laughs> completely no hey and i love this i was almost like i don't even i love where this is going i mean you are touching on some really great points there um so i guess on that if you want to continue that thought again i really i love the direction we're going but also social media social media and digital was kind of thought of as a supplement to the big TV deal or the big movie deal. And then everybody would sort of be waiting with bated breath for that 26 half hours or big theatrical release. But then in the last five years, um, 
shows have been hits on uh, Netflix, which is not the traditional, you know, scheduled viewing. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, you know, they'll they'll roll out a show per week. Um, But in some cases, they'll they'll drop a few shows at a time or they'll drop a whole season or, you know, there's different programming strategies on the digital platforms. And then of course, YouTube is like the wild west. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And then there are all the other platforms like Instagram and um, Snapchat and TikTok that have their own ecosystems with their own stars and things like that. So um it's really amazing to see how brands have been adapting to those new tools. And, and really it is essential for, um, for consumer products companies to drive the consumer behavior, because if they're not, if they're not selling stuff they're then they're not, they're not sustaining their business. They really do. I mean, I know, I know, Fans sometimes have trouble understanding that, but it's it's not meant to hurt anybody's feelings or to be mean to the characters or anything. It's just that we all need jobs, and you know, this is capitalism. <laughs> this is so. Um, so, it, but brands have been seeing the power of the different digital options, and some brands have even started creating for. The digital platforms first. So there are a lot of original series that have um, they start out at Netflix, and then the toy line will come out after that. And then also, um, like for example, Mattel has a whole toy line that started several years ago. Maybe it's even ten years old by now, uh, called Monster High. Which Monster High they started with YouTube Shorts. They never did. Um, long form entertainment uh, in the beginning anyway they and and that would have been a brand that in in the old days people would have said oh yeah you need to have a tv show to to advertise that because kids need to see see that every day or at least once a week and and then it reinforces hey remember these toys you know remember remember this um this ip so um and uh, Sega has done a really great job with short form entertainment. Um, when I came on board at Sega in 2015, I, I came on board the second season of Sonic Boom, which was a big expensive show that we produced for Cartoon Network. And, and it was lovely and, and people watched it, but it was very expensive and very hard to recoup that investment. Um, the animation was very high quality and uh, it took a long time. It was just a really, it, to get the quality, there's just rendering time and so forth that goes into animation that needs to be taken into account. So um, so after, after season two um, of Sonic Boom, Sega went to a different strategy that they would really put a lot more emphasis on the, the games and that to supplement the game sales, they would do short form entertainment. They would do YouTube shorts. And that's worked out really, really well for them. The, the Sonic Mania Adventures, especially, that um, that's done very well. And then also they do a live stream. Um, the live stream is on uh, Twitch and YouTube and I think Facebook as well. 
And that's super popular. And that's a great way for the employees to connect with the fans because we, we all used to contribute to it. I, I, they still do. I, I don't because I'm not there anymore. But then they would have um, guest stars and so forth. But the chat was really important because we would analyze that afterwards and see like, okay, what are people responding to? What aren't they responding to? And um, And it was also a good way to um, show off new merchandise. Like if we had some new t-shirts, then we'd all just put on a shirt and we didn't even really have to say anything about it. People would just be curious, like, Hey, where'd you guys get those shirts? And then it would start a conversation organically. It wasn't like we were trying to sell anybody anything. So all, all kinds of interesting things are happening now in the digital space, not just with YouTube, but, um, you know, the game, game companies have really embraced Twitch and, um, and that's really great to see and, um, all kinds of things. Yeah. And God, you know, when you talk about the, the degree of fan engagement, it's funny. I really feel like everything you just said there, I have to leave that going. All right. Well, I have nothing to contribute. I think you've said absolutely everything that needs to be said there, which is great. Um, because yeah, that, that's exactly where my brain was going to. And something I wanted to ask you about later is, you know, I imagine on digital, there is just a, a new degree to fan engagement. And we just talked so much about the value of doing market research and really being in tune with what the audience is saying. And I mean, the tools at our disposal for digital it's unlike anything you'll ever see. I mean, you know, YouTube, you'll get a comprehensive comment section with Twitch. You'll be able to see, wow, at this exact point, this was the exact sentiment by the fans. So I, I'm curious now in the industry, are you noticing that suddenly, oh, wow, digital, let's take YouTube, let's take Twitch, maybe even some of the other TikTok and Snapchat that up on the priority list of distribution it has skyrocketed up as, wow, this is really feeding into uh, great fan engagement and resulting in better conversions. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and with the short form content, it's, it's a less risky uh, undertaking for a company, whether it's like a, a person who's creating a brand at home in their bedroom or whether it's a big company, you can, the, the point of entry is, pretty accessible for everybody across the board. I mean, if you've got a, a smartphone, there you go. That's pretty much all you need to get started. And people sell stuff that way. And, and, and it's not, it's not so much of the direct selling like TV commercials. It's um, just creating compelling content. And, um, and then that, that um, process of discovery, of discovery, fan discovery. So, you know, it's it, again, balancing act between getting eyeballs on your creation and um, not saying, hey, look at me, look at me. So, and some people are, are, are good at that from the get-go. And then some people, it, it's a skill that you can learn. You can definitely observe what's worked. Looking at case studies is, really really helpful especially people who've grown their brands from little things you know little little mom and pop kind of operations where well like ryan's toys or like um um jojo siwa um 
Diana, little Diana, and you know all all those all those influencers who have who have managed to cross over into selling consumer products. That's incredible, and I and I don't know that they sat down with um, marketing strategists at any point. I mean, maybe after they took off, they did. But I don't know if moms and dads across the world are saying like, hmm, you know, like with spreadsheets and stuff like that. Some people are just intuitive. Yeah. I mean, God, I I am inundated by articles, Uh, especially now. I think it came out who the top YouTube earners were uh, from this past year. And it's no surprise it, it is these kids creators. And frankly, I think the articles were only taking into account AdSense. It wasn't even taking into account the amount that their brands have made. So I guess as we talk about that, uh, Ryan's Toys World, uh, Ryan Toy World, uh, uh, Love Diana, um, some of these other properties, has that, I'm sorry, saying has would be a stupid way to put it, but let's say how, to what degree has this changed the consumer products uh, to TV, into narrative television industry. Because I imagine the unbelievable success of, say, Orion uh, has probably just shifted the norms completely as well as the desires of most of these companies. Yeah, well, everybody appears to be risk-averse. these Now more than ever, there's always been or always in my lifetime, there seems to have been a, um, a risk averse behavior in the entertainment industry. People want to like see dollar signs as soon as you walk into the room with whatever, whatever your wares are. But um, now there's this expectation that, you know, if you're going to pitch a property at one of the traditional media companies, they want a plan or they want a property that has been established in some way in another form and it has it has proven success in that form so so it's it's really hard to unless you're a super famous creator um like a superstar writer or actor um those types of people can go in and sell a show maybe based on a pitch or their personality or what have you but for other production companies and creators and so forth um the 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 bigger players if you're trying to get bigger players to invest in your property they want to they want to know how many social media you know how many channels do you have and what is the engagement on those channels so so and it de- depends on who who you're trying to pitch to and who you're trying to do business with what what will be important to them again like the demographic of the property you know if you're if you're doing a preschool show then you wouldn't expect whatever it is your whatever the property is to have a huge instagram following but i mean maybe i mean if it's somebody's pet who has an instagram uh following then and you're trying to make a preschool show based off of that and you can show that hey parents could potentially like this and want to buy this merchandise for their kids you know it's another thing it's about interpreting the data so so you can people can also get very creative with the data and saying oh well that's what this this means this if if this many men between the ages of 18 and 35 like something that means that their little brothers who are 
ages 10 to 12 would like this too. And therefore we're going to sell a whole bunch of whatevers to these little kids. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, but one, one thing, there is an expectation now that if you're, if you're presenting something, if you're trying to get investors, um, licensees or, you know, a big media company on board, you've got to have something going for you other than, hey, I've got this cute character or I got this, I, I, I wrote a great script. Um, I guess people still sell spec scripts now, uh, uh, but that's, that's not really the business that I'm in. Uh, on the other hand, as me, just me, I like to write spec scripts and, uh, and I like to put them in film festivals and competitions and see what happens. But I can't say that I've sold one of my personal creations re super recently. So I, I haven't grown anything to the extent of Orion on online. So I think if I did, maybe I'd have better luck than just with a, a script that's a great idea but doesn't have any like um, brand value or, or proven commercial viability. Yeah. yeah. Like it needs to be more than just, I'm hyper creative. This is my, uh, this is a sample of what I could produce. It needs to come along with something else that proves, okay, wow, this is really going to be a huge hit. Um, so whether that's a huge following on social or I guess any of those other metrics you alluded to. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Well, um, got it. Marlene, uh, is there anything else, I guess, before we wrap up that you would like to mention that we didn't get to about this topic or about your personal ventures here? Uh, well, if you, want, if you wanna learn more about me or uh, have a chat or what have you, you can, look me up on my website, www.pinkpoodleproductions.com. And also I am a maniac on LinkedIn. So please link with me because I love LinkedIn. That's my favorite social media. And I'm also on the, the other usual suspects to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. And yeah, I love to talk about this stuff. It's pretty, pretty much my life now. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, we had all, it's been my life for a long time, but even more so now that, that our worlds have shrunken, <laughs> shrunk this year. And, uh, so it's work and, and then more work. So, and, um, yeah, I can't think of, uh, any, anything else newsworthy, but yeah. Hey, no pressure. I, I think you summed it up well, uh, especially in this world. Um, and yes, LinkedIn, uh, you're quite active. Uh, that is how we found each other, but it's the best. Hey, I'm glad, I'm glad you're leveraging it. Um, that's how we're here. I asked earlier, how did we wind up at this conversation? What's the background? The short to that story is LinkedIn. The long is everything else. So there's a lot of value there. Exactly. Exactly. So, awesome. well, I'm very grateful that we found each other. So thank you for this opportunity, Dylan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit. Please subscribe for more deep dives in interviews on the direction of digital media.